0: And uh, please turn in your copy of the Holy Scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we will consider verses 14 through 17 this afternoon. And as you turn there, this is our Thanksgiving sermon this day, and our practice is, after receiving the grace of the Lord at the table, out of gratitude and thanks, we resolve to live for him, and here our duty to live as the Lord's. Uh, That's the classic formulation of the scriptures, isn't it? You know, it's a classic, uh, and I know the Heidelberg is especially structured this way. The book of Romans is too. There's first comes guilt. So in our preparatory services, we see our guilt and the need of the grace of God in Christ. In our communion service, we see the grace of the Lord. So then comes grace, and we see the grace of the Lord freely given to sinners. And then in the Thanksgiving service, we are called to exercise grace in gratitude. So guilt grace, gratitude. These are the three parts of the Christian life. And so out of gratitude for the Lord, not to be saved, we uh, constrain ourselves to walk as the Lord's out of a thankful heart to live for Christ, that the grace of the Lord would not be in vain. Well, that to set the theme of what we are about to do, let us hear now from the very words of God, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 17. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet not now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come once again to the preaching of the word. And uh, Father, our flesh hates the message of this text. And yet what a wonderful message it is that we should live for the one who has died for us and that the love of Christ ought to constrain us. And so we pray in the preaching of the word that you would uh, penetrate our hard hearts. You would give the minister not opinions to preach, but the very word of God to (coughs) preach. You'd give the very spirit of the Lord that is able to do these things in the hearts of your people to the minister. And also the people of God would would have the spirit of the Lord, that they would see Christ and that they would pant after him. Oh, Father, would you magnify Christ now? the one who died for us, that we would live for him and live for him forevermore. We pray then to that end, Father, that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that the faith of this congregation should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, in our communion services this summer, we have sought to behold something out of the scripture. To see those places where God calls us to take special note of something. And so in our preparatory service, we beheld, we were to behold the beauty of Christ in the Song of Songs. In our communion service this morning, we were to behold the man, Christ, who has died in our place out of love for us. And now in our Thanksgiving service, we are to behold that to the Christian, all things are become new. The old has passed away. That we are to live as a new creation, born again in Christ. And if we are born again, old things have passed away. Our old way of life, our old way of thinking, our old way of dealing with God and neighbor, totally gone. Behold, all things are become new in the new birth. There are now new affections. There are now new desires. There's even new obedience out of love for the Savior and love for neighbor. And it is the motivation, though, this afternoon that the Apostle provides to live as these new creatures that is so striking in this text. And why it is that it is our Thanksgiving sermon after the sacrament. He says that it is the love of Christ that constrains us to live for him. His love, especially in this text, as was demonstrated in his death. To the Apostle Paul, that is the constraining power on the soul that enables the Christian to live for Christ and put to death the old man to live as a new creature. And it is this powerful, constraining, compelling force of the love of Christ on the reborn heart that, Christian, you must take away from this text. As you seek to live for Christ, as you seek to live for God, as you seek to to um, to stay away from temptation, to have success over sin, to live for the Lord. You must take away the constraining power that the apostle has for his soul, which is to live for he who died for you and loved you. And so. We'll break that down a bit more, but our theme is that essentially is being made new in Christ. You must die to yourself to live for Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you. We'll consider this under three heads on your outline. First is to consider our first state, which is we were dead without Christ. Second is that we are made alive in Christ. And third is to understand what our life in Christ now, being taken from the dead, ought to be like. First, dead without Christ. Our text says that you who believe are new creatures. New creatures in Christ. Verse 17 says, all things are passed away. And he says, behold, you must see this. All things are become new. You are a new creature. There is, in other words, has not been a moral improvement to your soul. As though, well, there are a few things that the Lord has maybe made me better at in in my life that's what other religions are after and they fail at utterly anyhow because it has no power but in christ he says you are a new creature new by the working of the holy spirit of god freed from the bondage and power of sin that once pervaded every part of your soul this is what we confess with the doctrine of total depravity isn't it that every portion of our soul is polluted. But praise the Lord, when you are in Christ, you are not improved, you are renewed, and you are reborn. You are born again, as we heard this morning. Sometimes, beloved, we simply need to remember this when it comes to living for Christ, that I am not the man or woman I once was. Uh, That is not who I am. That is not my identity anymore. I am made new in Christ, and that is why the scripture says behold because we need to take note of it. And it's something that we don't take notice of, beloved, that I am not the man I once was, and that man is actually dead. It's so providential. I it's so many times, isn't it interesting how the, the scripture readings match the the sermon text. Galatians 2:20 was there for us in our scripture reading, wasn't it? That I have been crucified with Christ. Yet I live, but it is Christ that lives in me. See, this is the new creature. Yes, my old man, and and we struggle this way, don't we? It's still thrashing around and lashing about my soul like a dead beast, right? That is in its death throes. But truly the new has come and the old is past. I am not a slave. I am not constrained to what I once was. And that is really where the hope of the Christian is when we wrestle with our sinfulness. I need to behold, I am a new creature. And so, I've spoken of this before, but I thought it fitting to bring it back here, is that when some deny that concupiscence, which is that desire for sin, is a sin, what, when they teach you that some of us will always be attracted to certain sins, and usually this is in the sexual realm these days, they are refusing to behold, you are a new creature in Christ. The Christian is a new creature if born again. The old has passed away. And you are not defined by those sins anymore. And all things are new in Christ. New affections are yours. New loves are yours. New desires are yours. New panting for Christ. A new love for righteousness. A wanting to walk according to the commandments of God. As a new creature, in a lot of ways, it is the beginning of eternity in the soul of the Christian today. The beginning of a new heavens and a new earth is begun in the renovated soul today. Uh, That's why there is a love found in the soul of the believer for this petition. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. All things are made new. Not just outward duties being performed, right? But there is a true inward change of all the faculties of the soul. That is what Christ has done. Yeah, I mentioned it, there is still a residual struggle, right? The spirit lusts after the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. But this new creature actually is at war against sin. And that's what makes it new. So you must behold, Christian, you are new in Christ. You are not, you are not a slave to what you once were. There is freedom in Christ, and that must be your identity. And if you would behold it, and you would embrace it, you would find yourself warring with sin and by God's grace overcoming it as well. But let's first ask, if we were a new creature in Christ, what were we before? What were we before the Savior laid hold of us? What is it that he has freed us from and made us reborn into? Beloved, you have to know what that is. For not only will knowing that cause you to better glorify Christ and praise him today for what he has done, totally unearned by you, But also so that when you recognize yourself as living as your old man, you would recognize it immediately and say, oh, I am living the life crucified with Christ. And I must repent and embrace the new creation by the grace of God. So it's such an aim and view. The latter part of verse 14 reminds you. And maybe you've been a Calvinist for so long or reformed that uh, you know this, but I think it is always good to re-impress this on the soul. Verse 14, the latter part. We thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. All dead. We were once all dead before the Holy Ghost penetrated our dead and deceitful heart. Ephesians 2.1 says we are spiritually dead. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were once all dead to God. We were all once dead to righteousness. And I know, Christian, as you struggle in this life, sometimes you might be tempted to be despondent. But remember, the new creation has come because you do struggle and you do seek the Lord. Once you were dead to the things of God. Once there was no struggle. You were wholly given over to these things. Once you had no care for God. Once you had no care for Christ. Once you had no care for prayer. If I don't pray, then you don't care. But when the Christian says, I struggle in prayer and I struggle with righteousness and on and on and on and on. That shows you the new creature has come. And you should be glad because you were once dead. Dead to God and dead to righteousness. All about your sinful self. All the time. Without a love for and care for God. The true God had no place in your heart. And what love we had for neighbor, it was rooted in our own selfishness and pride. Even to make ourselves feel good when we tried to love another. I love another because it makes me feel good and I'm getting something out of it. Or I'm meriting something with them. Or maybe even you have a kind of civil religion where you believe or a natural man's religion where you think, if I do good to my neighbor and I had a coworker like this, then God is pleased with me. And God is going to... Let me into heaven above. All our actions then were tainted with impurity. Never, especially for God's glory. That is what we once were. Dead in trespasses and sin. We were the servants of sin. Romans six six. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. To know what you once were. Before you were born again, before you were crucified with Christ, simply reverse Romans 6 6, and you see that we served sin through a body of sin. That is the old nature, and that is what you were constrained to do with no power over it. But that is not what you are today, Christian, nor is it what you are constrained to anymore. When we beheld Christ broken in the bread, that sacramental action shows you that he broke. He broke. Sin's controlling power over you on the cross. I am crucified with Christ. I have died with him on the cross. If Christ has set me free, I am free indeed. And so as a new creature then, you must never give sin a controlling place in your life. It has no right and it has no power over you. You are gods in Christ. And by the grace of God that you tasted in the sacrament, you are to take that grace And you are to take it as strength for a purpose, to mortify and root out indwelling sin, to basically nourish and grow the new creature in Christ. You know, we are still growing in this new creature. The new has come, but it's still being grown, and it's being strengthened in us by the means of grace. And that's what we did this morning. And to know what Christ has done, to put down the old nature is what should really motivate you to kill it. You saw it in the sacrament, Jesus broken, Jesus' death. What does verse 14 say again? We thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. What does the verse tell you to judge? That is, admit to yourself, that Christ had to die. And the all here is for all the elect, and that becomes clear from the context. I don't have time to continue to develop that out. But Christ had to die for all the elect because we were all spiritually dead. And so the question, believer, is this. Why would we live, beloved, for what Christ had to die to free us from? Why would we live for what Christ had to die to free us from? Our Savior this morning, you heard from John 19, was made a bloody sacrifice for our sin to give us life, a new life, out of his death. Listen to verse 15. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. What does this teach us about our old life? That we must not live in this manner anymore. In our old way of life, we used to live for who? For ourselves. For ourselves. Everything was about us. Everything. And if you live that way as a Christian, you live as the unregenerate and you live as the reprobate. When your thoughts are predominantly, and again, predominantly on yourself, not on Christ and not on others, you live for yourself. And that is something you must never do anymore. So you must ask yourself today, what are my thoughts and my affections like? What is my thought life like? Where is Christ in it and where am I? Is it constantly on myself? Am I constantly thinking of what I must do for myself? What I I need? What others are not giving me? What God is not giving me? Or am I constantly thinking about God and neighbor? Do your thoughts and affections then reflect the great commandments? So boys and girls, what are the two great commandments? Love to God and love to neighbor and you've heard that in the catechism questions that are being recited by our young ones aren't you that the law of god regulates our affections right so where are your affections when it comes to love to god and love to neighbor as yourself so that's actually an interesting thing isn't it love to god is first love to neighbor as yourself do you know, have you thought about where you are in the two commandments right in the first commandment you have nothing <laughs> And the second commandment, you're there only insofar as you love others as you already love yourself, right? This is not a self-esteem program where he's saying you need to love yourself more to love others. No, he says you love yourself enough. Go love others as much as you love yourself. And that's the second great commandment, isn't it? Are you the centerpiece then of the commandments of God? No. You're only found in love your neighbor insofar as you love them as yourself. And so when our pattern is to be consumed with ourselves, we live as the old man which is passing away. But when our hearts are set to love God and our neighbor, we live as new creatures. To consider, continue that thought, verse 16, and, and there's some difficulty here in these, these texts I'd like to draw out for you. Verse 16 says, once we used to know man after the flesh. And flesh here is a reference to our corrupt, sinful nature. In other words, we once, before the new creation has come, we used to consider other men according to our corrupt and sinful nature. When we thought about others, we were always thinking about them according to our carnal ends. What can they do for me? I am never thinking about what I might do to bless them. We considered them even in terms of what advantages we might gain from them. When we considered our fellow man, we did not want to bless them or to serve them. We do not want to love them for their own sake. And if we did charitable works, this is what has become really notorious with social media. It was bad enough in Jesus' day where everybody wants to trumpet their good works. It's really bad now when you have Facebook and Instagram. Everybody wants to show, look, I bought lunch for this person and they're videotaping themselves. Even doing good works now is about me. But that's just a new manifestation in terms of outward display of what has always been in the hearts of men which is to really make even good deeds about themselves. You constantly see, you want to to always exalt yourself. Uh, what a good person I am. How good I am at being good, right? This is what, where charity goes. This is why you have the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, named after themselves. It's about glory to themselves. Our altruism, that, that's just the way we are. They just have more money. But all of us have that same problem. Our altruism was about ourselves, not out of beneficence. And if that is how poorly we considered man, even worse is how we considered Christ. Verse 16 says, we used to know Christ after the flesh, that is, carnally. Meaning we'd never esteemed Jesus Christ. We perceived him as sinful man does. His name was just as it is in so many movies and television shows, an expletive and a curse in our mouth whenever we're provoked. Consider how his name is blasphemed. You walk out that door, and I trust not in this inside this door, but outside that door. His name is just used as a, as a random expletive for people to use and blaspheme. And maybe then we even thought of him as we think of him religiously, as another religious teacher with some good things to say. But maybe just another philosopher among men. Maybe a man like Gandhi before his time. Or maybe, maybe, and this was maybe myself, maybe he was even an annoyance. His followers kept saying, accept Jesus. And I said, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And his name had been an irritant to our flesh. But maybe even worse than that, he becomes an object of our irrational hatred when the gospel is preached. And we become as the Jews in John 19, take him away. I don't want to hear of the Savior. Crucify him. Crucify him. Away with this man. What, do, what happens when sinful man hears things like he is the only way to God? Take him away. I don't want to hear about him. When they hear he must have died for my sins in order to stay out of hell, that I am not a good person myself. This Jesus goes from being an irritant to an object of abject hatred. We don't want anything to do with him. You can see that all the time. Whenever you go and witness, we go out in the open air and you preach the glorious mercies of Jesus Christ, and people will will say, this is not the time and place, or they'll say, shut up, essentially, to the most glorious, glorious person who gives himself, as we saw in the supper. That's how the flesh treats Jesus. I often marvel with our children in family worship. We've been in John, that's why I chose John 19. We've been in that part in family worship. And I often marvel with our children when we marvel at why do men hate Jesus so much? He was holy. He was harmless. He only ever blessed God and his neighbor. And he came to be a ransom for sinners and freely save them by his own blood. And we have to say, well, I know. We know, don't we, why men hate Jesus and despise him. Because as John's gospel opened, as we opened in our family worship, men loved the darkness more than light. They loved their sin more than they would love free grace and mercy. They would even love hell more than they would love heaven. Jesus is the light that convicts us of our evil. There is nothing in him to hate, friends. All there is is to esteem him. But the more we found out about Jesus before our conversion, until the day the Spirit converted us, the less we were apathetic to him and the more we found hatred towards him. And you have to think about the man then who writes this text. He himself called himself a blasphemer and a persecutor of Christ, wasn't he? He writes from experience, friends. He knows how the flesh treats Jesus Christ. He knows what sinful man, and he, moved by the Holy Ghost, had a keen experience of what hatred of Jesus was like before conversion, as you saw him before he was born again on the road to Damascus. So what you have to do as you think about your new life, you have to think about Jesus Christ, uh, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This morning you were exhorted to behold the man, God taking on flesh to be our substitute, not just a good teacher, boys and girls, not just a religious figure to throw on the never-ending pile of religious men, but holy God incarnated to staggeringly, staggeringly die for sinners that they might know God the only mediator between God and man, such that no man comes to the Father but by Him. And He must become to the new creature He who is altogether lovely, as you heard last week. So if you're not esteeming Christ now, you are living according to the old man which is passed away. And the more that you esteem Christ, the more you live for Him, the more you look unto Him, the less you live as the man or woman you once were. There are many... Christians who have very little esteem for Jesus Christ. They live not as a new creature. To despise Christ is of the old, to esteem Christ is of the new creature. Well then, I've gone long on this first heading. Let's ask, where does this new creation come from? And we see it is Christ's work, and we'll consider that next, alive in Christ. So believer, you need to meditate on this, especially on this day where you give thanks. One day did you decide all by yourself. I need to be born again, and I will make myself new today. No. It's impossible for you to do it. The Lord did it, and you must acknowledge it, and you must bless him for it, that you would, out of gratitude, live in it. Friends, he doesn't owe any of us a new birth. He doesn't owe any of us a new creation. And yet he, out of his love and kindness, that preceded the world's beginning. The Bible says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Ephesians 2, 4-5. He quickened us, and we must be thankful. How little thanks we have for that. He gave us life and united us to Christ. Christ makes you a new creature because he that sat upon the throne said, throne said, behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21.5. This is his work. He has made all things new in your soul, beloved. And have you forgotten that, Christian? That one day it was all darkness. It was all death. It was all enmity to God and neighbor. And then one day, the loving kindness of God manifested itself in Jesus Christ through the word of God. And you were translated from death and into his marvelous light. And that is all what we call the grace of God. Nothing to do with yourself. Verse 17 then says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. This is the predication You have to be in Christ to be a new creature. You heard this morning that those with faith are taken from Adam's headship and united to Jesus Christ. Christ is our federal head, but this is not a mere legal relationship. When the Holy Spirit comes to us and converts us, he puts us in Christ vitally. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. After the Spirit, take note, Romans 8.1, it is the Spirit of the Lord that unites us to Christ and implants us in Christ. And you have a living, vital, that's what that word vital means. When we say vital union, you have a living union. This is not a paper relationship. You have a vital union with your living Savior, Jesus. If you took the supper by faith, you tasted your vital union with Him. As you spiritually partook of Christ's body, which was signified in that broken bread, and ye spiritually partook of Christ's blood, signified in sipping the wine. Jesus said, I am the vine and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. John fifteen five. Without this vital union you have nothing, friends. And the new creation comes from a vital union with Jesus. And it is also strengthened and grown and nourished from our union with him. The table gave you grace to live as a new creature. And you are to exercise that grace you received to live as a new creature in thankfulness. I don't want to go past this too quickly. You see, a lot of Christians are deluded into thinking that they are right with God, but they are not a new creature. All must ask. Am I truly a Christian? Am I truly a Christian? Am I born again? Jesus says, ye must be born again. In other words, you must be a new creature. Boys and girls, your baptism will not save you. Your family being in church will not save you. Those who attend church, those of you here without saving faith in Christ, you gain no merit with God by being here. Instead, to attend church without coming to Jesus for mercy will actually heap more condemnation as you've heard the gospel over and over again. You've heard there is no condemnation in Christ. And the Lord will ask, why did you never take me for yourself? How do you know if you are born again? You know it if you have saving faith. You know it if you look to Jesus alone for your salvation and not your works. You know it if you are living as a repentant sinner, constantly convicted of your sin But turning to Jesus for forgiveness, constantly saying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And then you desire, this is important too, to live for Jesus Christ out of gratitude from the heart. To follow him, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and go after Jesus Christ. Then you are living as one born again. And so, you must not just be in church, you must truly be a Christian in the heart, you must be in Christ, and what that means for you is to repent and put your faith in Christ. You must believe in the gospel which says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and admit that as a sinner, I can do nothing to save myself from the wrath of God Almighty, and that I need the mercy and grace of Christ. And if you do, All things, and this has been the experience of so many here and those at the table, all things will become new to you. What you once held dear, living for yourself, you will count, as the apostle says, as dung, as rubbish. And you will now live unto him which died for them and rose again. And as you live for Christ, you will know that as Christ died, you have died. But as Christ rose again from the dead and lives forevermore, so you will be too. What you must be is not a better creature, but a new creature. Totally new. Christ can do it for you, friend. Flee to him. Lay hold of him by faith. And in doing so, what you know as you look at the scriptures is that Jesus Christ has laid hold of me first. And he is the one who has drawn me to himself to take hold of him. And you will say of a truth, behold, all things are become new. Well, This is where I want to focus the remainder of our time, though. Those of you blessed by God and born again, you need to consider, lastly, your life with Christ. So if we are in Christ, if we are a new creature, we are to live for Christ. I was thinking about this. This is the Apostle Paul, right, who wrote this text, obviously. And to consider him is really to marvel. To marvel at how a sinful man can live a life for Christ. To spend his life for Christ. Sometimes I think we look at Paul the wrong way. And we, we first we marvel at his gifts. Marvel at his wonderful gifts. And we say the gifts that the Lord had given this man are so extraordinary. So that he could serve Christ's kingdom in these remarkable ways. And it is true none of us will ever be so gifted as this man. True. But all of us are called to use our gifts to live for Christ. Every breath we take is meant to be for Jesus and the pursuit of holiness. In our ordinary vocations, I not have to be an apostle. In fact, there are no apostles but anymore. But uh, in your ordinary vocations, in every interaction, every idle word, whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we are to do it for the glory of Christ. And the secret of Paul's manner of living was not his gifts, friends. His manner of living is very simple though profound. And all of us are to take from the man his life, we often gloss over how he lived, but in so many places, doesn't he, beloved? He tells us how he ran for Christ. He expresses it here in verse 14, saying what? The love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ compels us. The constraint that was found upon his soul and in every action he ever took, every gift that he exercised, every grace he received was Christ's love. The constraint of Christ's love charted Paul's course. Boys and girls, you might have seen uh, cowboys, for instance, herding cattle. To direct them, they sometimes use a channel to constrain them, whether an artificial one, right, like with gates, or a natural one, like a canyon, as they're herding cattle. And the cattle constrained by these boundaries have no option but to go where the cowboy sends them. The apostle says his soul is like this. His soul was constrained in the direction it ought to go by the love of Christ. It wasn't a canyon. It wasn't a gate. It was the love of Christ that compels and constrains his soul. You might ask, you know, it seems like maybe the grammar is ambiguous here. The love of Christ. Now, is that our love for Christ? Is that his love for Christ that constrained Paul? Or was it Christ's love for Paul that constrained him? How do you read the love of Christ? And It's vital to get that straight. It is his love for us that constrains our soul. We only love him. Why? Because he first loved us after all. 1 John 4.19 And then he takes us into union with himself. He takes hold of us first out of his love. And frankly, friends, it must be the case because our love for Christ is a very weak thing. It cannot constrain us. It cannot constrain our soul. Compared to his love for us, what is our love to him? We even have a hard time, don't we, even praying to him out of love or fleeing temptation out of love. So could the love that we have for Christ constrain us? No. It is his love to us that we beheld this morning at the table. A love so strong and unquenchable that it took him to the cross for sinners. That is the constraint to put upon your soul. Our love is weak and flimsy in comparison, but the love of Christ is all-conquering. If you would meditate on his love affectionately, the path of your soul would be constrained and bound to follow Christ and live as new creatures. And the truth that it is the love of Christ that compelled every action of the apostle is seen elsewhere in Paul. Again, it was providentially our reading in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It teaches the same as our text. Dead to ourselves in Christ, crucified with him, but nevertheless I live as a new creature. But how do I live? I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No different. Then the love of Christ constraineth us. No different than verse 15, too, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So if you're ever tempted to think that Galatians 2 20 doesn't apply to each and every Christian, you come here into Second Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 17, and you see that he says, us, not just me, us. So you want to know the secret of the apostle's life? This is it. This is simply it, friends. The Holy Spirit reveals it in scripture that you might know how the greatest Christian of all time lived. So that you might go and do the same. To live for Christ who loved you and died for you. That this would be the compelling force on your soul and constrain you. And on a communion Sabbath like today especially, you have tangibly seen his love. By God's grace, you have had the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine. I pray has marked your soul, has impressed upon it the love of Christ and the death of Christ. And to what end? That you would not live for yourself, but for Christ. For Christ who loved you. For Christ who died for you. For Christ who died for a sinner who forfeited every claim to life, happiness, and blessedness. Christ loved you and died for you. And so out of thankful hearts, you are to live as new creatures to please Christ, to not chase the old man that has passed away with his lusts and deceitful desires, to not chase what is past in our text. What do we hear of what the things that pass in 1 John two seventeen? And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Those are the things that pass, friends. you're not to live for that which is passing away, but for that which abides forever. You are to pursue your beloved. You are to pursue Christ. You are to live for your husband, who you saw this morning on the cross as he dies. Out of his side, the church is saved. The church is taken as the, the bride of Christ, out of his side as the water and the blood pour forth. He saves you from destruction and he redeems your life from the pit. He did it selflessly. He did it graciously. He did it willingly out of love. So why love the world? Why love sin, brethren, when you could be pursuing Christ? What has the world ever done for you? What will the world ever do for you? What will sin ever do to you but destroy you and consume you Uh, and its desire is for you to destroy you as God has told Cain? Yet Christ who loved you and died for you. We are often so cold to pursuing him who has given us every blessedness. This is the constraint to put upon your soul, to put off the old man with his deceitful lusts. And so the call is for you, Christian, to live for Christ as a new man or a new woman, to put away your lusts by the grace of God and by a fervent meditation on the love of Christ. How often you know you shouldn't just be meditating on the love of Christ preparing for communion you should be doing it daily you should be doing it daily and i will say that this has been the secret to so many of the godly uh, you see it here it's the secret of Christ's manner of uh, not Christ's of Paul's manner of living isn't it but if you read biographies if you look at the great men and women in the church of Jesus Christ there was this all consuming love for Christ that was found in them and to put more legs to this doctrine of putting off what is old, you might consider Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, that you put off concerning the former conversation or conduct, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. See, the, the deceitful lusts. Our, our lusts are deceitful. They've done nothing for us. They'll only bring us misery, and yet we chase them and not Christ. It says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And the remainder of Ephesians 4 and 5, and I'm not going to read through all of it today for you, it shows you what the new creation is like. And you need to meditate on this because that is what you are called to be. Behold, the new has come. And this is what the new looks like. And this is what vital holiness is like. You will read about things like putting away lying, but then speaking truth instead. To not steal, but labor and give to those in need. To not have corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but instead to edify others. See, that's what the new creature is like. It's not just one that stops lying. It's not one that just stops stealing. But it's also one that is like Christ. It blesses. It gives. It thinks of others and it thinks of God. It says to let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away. And then at the same time, he says, instead be kind, be kind. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Do you see again the motive force there? That as Christ has forgiven you, you be forgiving to others. As Christ has loved you, you love others. And that's why when the fifth chapter of Ephesians opens, he says, and walk in love. Listen to this again. As Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us. Ephesians 5 2. And then he continues on, put away idolatry, filthiness, etc. Uh, how many times, maybe I'll ask, because this is a common problem for us. How many times have you missed personally, Christian, that it is the love of Christ shown to us that is the constraining influence of the soul? And when you struggle with your sin, then you have to go back to the love of Christ constraineth us. That the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian who truly understands what God has saved him out of has no option. Believer has no option in the soul that is regenerated and rejuvenated who understands the misery that he was or she was once in. uh, But to out of thanks to God out of thanks to Christ as we behold the man this morning to live for him to love him and change. This is why again we don't follow the commandments to be saved but we follow the commandments out of love. In how many ways, Christian, does the Bible have to show the love of Christ in the death of Christ as the motive force to live as a new creature? One should be enough, and one should captivate us eternally. But at least three times this afternoon I have shown you out of the Holy Word that it is the love of Christ in the death of Christ that should capture the affections of the soul. And the Lord means to grab your attention in that. So let me ask you, reflect yourself. How often do you begin your day with the meditation of the love of Christ? For a sinner who deserved hell. How often? How often, when you look at the commandments of God, do you say, Because Jesus loved me and gave himself for me, this commandment is a delight to keep? What did Jesus say after all? I'm always staggered by this. I grow more staggered more and more I grow in the faith. I'm always staggered that he put it this way If ye love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Now the king of kings has the very right to say, keep my commandments full stop. Doesn't he? That is his right, and we should. On the basis of his authority, his power, his dominion, we should and must keep his commands. We must acknowledge he rules over us. But for him to say this, if you love me, keep my commandments, shows you how love is meant to be the motive force for the believer. And because he first loved us, we love him. And because he first loved us, then we keep the commandments of God out of love to him. He not only gave you grace to keep the commandments of God in the supper, but he also gave you grace. And I know that this is the case for believers who come to the supper in this way. He gave you grace to incline your affections towards him. And it's not meant to be a light, okay, I I spent 20 minutes and I was taken by the love of Christ in the sacrament for that time and then I'm done and then three months from now I'll go back and I'll be affected again. No, you are to take those affections and live through them. You're to take those affections constantly. And this is where I think we have a degraded view of the Lord's Supper. We should be thinking on the Supper and what we have experienced and seen and heard every day of our life. Until the next time you come to the table, think about today, Christian. Think about today. Even if you didn't partake, think about what you saw at the table and you heard in the preaching. And the love of Christ must constrain you. If you would, I think you would have much more success living for God. Do not let the fires of your love for Christ cool. Continue to stoke it day by day, and you will find that obedience to the commandments of God to run as Paul ran for Jesus becomes a very easy thing indeed. And so, Christian, as we conclude, out of thanks to Christ for his grace today, will you behold or take note that you are a new creature? And will you let the love of Christ constrain you as you leave this place? Will you say, for whether I live, I live unto the Lord. And whether I die, I die unto the Lord. Whether I live, therefore, or die, I am the Lord's. When you need help, Recall what you partook of at the table. Think on the supper you've experienced and let the love of Christ constrain you and give thanks to God for such a great unquenchable love the Savior has had for you. And so Christian, live not henceforth for yourself, but unto him which died for you and rose again. And glorify your Savior in your new obedience. Amen. May God help us all do that by his grace. Let's rise for prayer if able. Truly, O God, the love of Christ is a remarkable thing. For all eternity, we will continue to to grow and grow in our regard and appreciation for his love. But until we come to glory, Father, would you cause the love of Christ to constrain us? Would you cause uh, our meditations on the love of God in Christ, that God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Would you let that simple truth motivate us and compel us and constrain us? When our days are full of ourselves, Father, send our thoughts to Christ. When we are tempted to look unto the world, help us to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith. Father, would you help us in all ways look to Jesus Christ and let us, Father, Grow in our esteem and regard for his love for sinners like us. And let us, Father, marvel at it that we would, out of thankful hearts, uh, leave this place and go uh, eager to follow our Savior wherever he leads us in his word. We ask this ultimately for the glory of he who loved us and died for us. In his name we pray. Amen.